chapter 25. I think we've been in Acts for like three months now, haven't we? <laughs> a mighty long time, mighty long time. I pray that you're enjoying it and you're learning something from God's word. We've been talking about Paul for the past couple of weeks. And I'm learning something new about his character and his focus as a man of God every time I read about him. We're in Acts chapter 25, and we'll begin at verse 23. Acts 25 and verse 23. Would you do me a favor today as you're flipping the pages right now or swiping on your iPhones? Would you just remind yourself silently that whatever comes out of my mouth today is for you? I'm trying to say this more often to when I preach. Many times we hear a word and say, I wish so-and-so was here to hear that. Wish my cousin was here. Wish my husband was here. He needed to hear that. But you're the one who's here today. And so whatever God says, I pray you internalize it and imply it to your life. Amen? Acts 25 and verse 23. Allow me to read in your hearing. The word of God says this. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man, the whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him off to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner on to Rome without specifying the charges that are against him. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. Let's pray. Father, your spirit is absolutely necessary in these next few moments. Whatever we do from here on out, if we do not have your spirit, it is for naught. So, Father... Send your spirit not into this building per se, but into every heart and mind under the sound of my voice. May everyone near and far, those watching by internet right now, may they be filled and attacked with your Holy Ghost. We need you to speak to us. We need a word right now in due season. Someone here today came looking for you to give them encouragement and hope just to get through this day let alone the rest of the week. And so, Father, I invite you here with us. Your word is clear. Where two or three are gathered, there you are. So I expect you to show up. Bless us now in these next few moments, and we'll be careful to give you praise, honor, and glory. Forgive us of sins and shortcomings, and above all things, save us into your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. First impressions. Um, <laughs> when I first started talking to girls... Why y'all look so nervous? (laughs) When I first started talking to girls, I picked up rather quickly that first impressions were everything. Ladies say amen. Amen. 
If you want to talk to a girl, especially nowadays, Lord, have mercy. Um, I think the, the common vernacular is you have to come with your stuff correct. I, I learned quickly that if I wanted to get a girl's number, if I wanted her to be my girlfriend, if I wanted to slip her a note, my game has got to be tight. Somebody say airtight. <laughs> I got to look the best, amen, come on, a fresh haircut, walk the walk, look the look, all that kind of stuff, because if I don't, I don't have a chance in you know what <laughs> in getting to be with her. First impressions are everything, and I learned along the way in my short time in living that if you make a good first impression, if you mess up somewhere along the way, at least that woman, that girl, will look back on the first time you met her with some glimmer of hope. Yeah, I learned that real fast. There's just no walking up to a girl these days and giving her some cheesy line, did it hurt when you fall out of heaven and all this kind of, no, that stuff is not, no, I never tried that, don't ask me, but it, 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 I just know, you know, from hearsay that it does not work. I learned very quickly that first impressions were everything. First impressions mean a lot as well, especially even when you're interviewing for a job. You only have one opportunity. Am I right about that? When you're sitting in that chair before the boss, before the people who have the power to hire you or to let you go, you better make a very good impression on them so they have some glimmer of hope in hiring you. And the only reason I bring that up is because spiritually speaking, there is nobody who makes a better impression impression on us than Jesus Christ. The more I think about it, your first impression of Jesus should be amazing in your mind. If you actually ever really came in contact with God, that that moment would have left such an indelible impression upon your psyche and upon your spirit. You would not ever forget that moment. I can remember personally back home when I asked my father, what should I read in the scriptures in order to get close to God? My dad told me, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I remember sitting down at my desk in front of my window and flipping the pages of life and reading the story of Jesus. I remember it like it was yesterday. God was speaking to me as I read his word. I remember literally, I kid you not, I'm not lying, this is not preacher talk. I remember many times after opening my Bible being drawn to tears. I remember laying out prostrate on my floor, asking God, 15-year-old boy, God, forgive me for my sins. I want to serve you with my whole heart and with my life. If you ever really came into contact with Jesus Christ, that first impression would be enough to last you a lifetime. The truth of the matter is when you are in trouble and when you are in difficult circumstances and when you think God does not hear your cry or he does not love you or the devil is tricking you in your life to believe that God does not care, maybe one of the things that we should do is go back to the time when we first believed in God. Maybe part of the problem is we have forgotten already what God has saved us from. 
Many of you should not be alive, myself included. It's crazy and ludicrous that you are sitting in the church right now listening to the word of God. You should not be here. But one day, God saved your life, made an impression on you, brought you out of your darkness into his marvelous light, brought you up and seated you in heavenly places. God saved you for you to be right where you are, and you never ought to forget what God has done. If God never does another thing in your life, he has done enough already. If you cannot see your way through from time to time, remind yourself, God has been good to me for the simple fact I'm still inhaling and exhaling. He's speaking to me every week from the pulpit. I get to praise his name. I should be dead. I should have lost my mind. But God saved my life. It'd be real nice if Christians actually believe that and internalize that and reminded themselves how much God has saved you from you, you, you. You would praise God a whole lot different if you reminded yourself moments before walking through those doors, yo, I was strung out on crack and God brought me out. I should be dead, but as I look over my life, I know that it was nobody but God that saved my life. Possibly the problem is for many Christians, they give credit to other people and other resources rather than God. Many of you are thinking right now, well, my mama did so much for me. Thank you, mama, for all that you've done. Yes, it was your mama, but God used your mama. God provided for you. Think back over all the stuff that you have been through in your life, all the trash and the hell that you have gone through that God has pulled you out of. It was God who did that. It was nobody else. Some of the stuff that you dealt with in your life, ain't nobody could bring it out of you. Nobody could change your heart. No psychologist could change your mind. You needed God. God showed up one day and saved your life. He made an impression on you that you ought not ever to forget. There are times I have to admit as a pastor, even as a pastor, I go through highs and lows. There are times when I'm on the mountaintop with God's presence. There are times I could be in the grocery store and change a conversation in a minute to talk about God. There are times where I'm just singing to God all day long. How great is our God? Praising his name, giving him glory. There are times in my life I don't ever want to leave the church because I'm so grateful and thankful for what God has done for me. And even if you've never been through a life or death experience, you still ought to thank God for his keeping power. That there were some things he did not allow you to go through. I hate it when people say, I don't have a testimony because my car didn't flip over 15 times and I walked out okay. I hate when people say, I don't have a testimony like her because I was never a prostitute or strung out or a cold girl. God never brought me out of that. I had both parents in my home. Both of my parents love God. I had a great life. I've never had a bill that I could never pay. You ought to praise God anyhow for God keeping you. There are times I'm on the mountaintop, and then there's times I'm way down low in the valley. 
There are times I feel like I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death all by myself. And can we just be honest for a moment? There are significant times in my life where I don't feel like coming to church. And I'm the pastor of the church. (laughs) There are times in my life I don't feel like praying to God because I feel like he's not hearing me. It's useless. He's not answering my prayer. There are times when I don't feel like opening up God's word. But in those moments, the thing that gets me back on track is reminding myself, God, you kept me. God, you saved my life. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But then the master of the sea heard my despairing cry from the waters, lifted me, and now safe am I. I remind myself. I could have been like some of my buddies out there on 1518 Balsam Street. Half of them are either dead or in jail right now. I praise your name. Not everything in my life is perfect, but I praise you anyhow because my good days outweigh my bad days and I will not complain. I thank you, God. Even for the trouble that you've allowed into my life, because I know that you've waited before you even gave it to me. And if you gave it to me, that means that I can can handle it. God, I praise your name. Thank you for saving my life. Thank you for blessing me. Thank you for keeping my family safe. Thank you, oh God, for giving me second chances and third chances and fourth chances when you could have just as easily taken me out. Thank you for allowing me to live today when I could have died last night in my sleep. Thank you, oh God, for blessing my life. Thank you for money. I don't have much, but I praise you anyhow. Thank you, oh God, for a good spirit and people that love me. God, I'm not worried about my haters and my frenemies. Thank you for the people that actually care about me. Thank you for my family. Thank you, Jesus. It, 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 it would be good if Christians rewinded the tape every once in a while. Go back in your mind and remember who you used to be. The curtain were pulled back in your life. People could see your past. How much stuff have you gotten away with? How much stuff have you done even in ignorance, did not even know that you were sinning against God? God has the authority to take you from this earth. But God winked at your circumstances and applied mercy to your situation. And here you are sitting in the church You ought to give God praise. (laughs) Oh, first impressions are everything. I remember that day God came into my life. I remember that time spent in my room reading God's word. And in times of my utmost extremity, In times when I feel low and I'm not close to God, I just rewind the tape every once in a while and say, God, you've done a mighty work in my life. You have been so good to me. I don't deserve half the stuff I have in my life. Praise your name. Well, what what does this have to do with the text at hand? Last week, I, I told you that 
40 plus deadly assassins came together in a blood oath to say that they will neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. (laughs) These brothers said to themselves, we take anathema unto ourselves. In other words, we anathematize ourselves or we call ourselves accursed by God unless Paul is dead. Then I told you if you go down in the verse that even though 40 plus of them had decided to kill him, because Paul was committed to God and not really worried about his circumstances at all, God countered the devil's attack by sending 470 soldiers to escort Paul out of the city that night. Well, the word says that the soldiers take him to Caesarea. There, the governor Felix is, is, is charged with examining him. Uh, uh, the Jews who want to see him dead, they say, Felix, you've got to kill this man. He is disrupting everything that we want to do. Felix doesn't really find anything wrong with him, and so he doesn't want to do anything crazy, so he leaves him in prison. For two years, Paul sits in prison. During that time, Felix, the Roman governor, sets steps down from power, and Festus, the next Roman governor, steps into his power. As soon as the Roman governor Festus comes into power, the Jews rise up again after Paul being in prison for two years already with the same old charges. Talk about holding a grudge. They want Paul dead so much. That even though he's been in chains for two years already, he really hasn't had the opportunity to preach. They tell themselves, we have got to kill him. There is no way that we can allow this powerful man of God to stay alive. Well, Festus says he did not find anything wrong with him. And he really kind of, I think, wanted to let him go. But instead, Festus inquires of King Agrippa, who has a Jewish background. He calls up his friend and he says, King Agrippa, I want you to come with me and hear this brother Paul to hear what he has to say so that we may bring up some charges so that when he goes to Rome, we'll have something against him. The word of God tells us something important here at this point. It says that one day in the audience hall of the palace or in the judgment hall of the palace, King Agrippa, Festus, all the high-ranking officials, all the military officers packed themselves together in one room. Now listen carefully, brothers and sisters. In this moment, in the context of this text, all of the prominent people in the city of Caesarea are in that room. Now, in an audience hall or a judgment hall back then, it's similar to this room. Of course, there's no pews here. Paul would be seated there or standing there, manacled and in chains, while everybody else would be round about watching what was going on. That day, Festus decided that he's going to pack the room with the most regal and prominent people that he could find. So he brings all the high-ranking military officials. Then he gets all the wealthy people. Then he gets King Agrippa. Then he gets other high-ranking people, and he packs the room with them. Ellen White tells us that in that room were the highest-ranking people in the society at that time, and there was such a movement of pomp and circumstance. There was a regality about that, that moment. All of them were decked out in royal robes. 
All of them had somebody read out the deeds that they had done. All of them thought they were kings and rulers and powerful and in authority in their own right. And Paul is standing there with chains on his hands and chains on his feet. And they all have the power with a word to either set him free or kill him. (laughs) So all of them are in the room. All eyes are on Paul. But I love what Ellen White says. Ellen White says that Paul is neither afraid, he is not impressed, and he is completely unaffected by the circumstances he is in. Mm. I'm going to preach this thing today if you give me my help. Paul is standing there amidst all of these powerful people who have the power to kill him, Or to set him free. Almost all of them have a wish to see his head on a spike. But at this moment, Sister White says, Paul is not even thinking about them. (laughs) In fact, she says, he forgets that they are even there. The only thing on Paul's mind is Jesus. In fact, she goes on to say that all eyes are on Paul. Everybody is watching him. Everybody knows that it's all about him. Everybody is thinking about what's going to happen next to him. And Paul is the one in the circumstance. And the only thing on his mind is God. <laughs> You'll get it in a second. So, 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 so Paul is there. He has uh, one opportunity to defend himself before they take him out, and Paul is not even concerned at all with his present circumstances. In his mind, the only thing he's thinking about is, God, how are you going to get glory now? Father, I know that you can fix this. I just want to know when. What what are you going to do next? Round about him are Gentiles and unbelievers, people who have never really heard the name of God or the story of Jesus. The only thing on Paul's mind is There are people here today who have never heard of God. In Paul's mind, oh, help me, Holy Ghost. He is only thinking about Jesus. He is not thinking about himself. He is not impressed by what is happening around him at all. You know why? And I'll give you two reasons and I'll take my seat today. Paul is not impressed by King Agrippa mainly and first of all because he has already seen Jesus. Okay, all right, all right, all right, all right. Paul is not impressed by King Agrippa because on his way to Damascus, he has seen already the King of Kings. So when King Agrippa walks into the judgment hall and his servants light up the trumpets and begin blaring, and when his servants read out the acts of the mighty things that he has done, Paul is literally standing there yawning to himself, bored out of his mind. None of this really impresses him. He is not thinking about them at all. The only thing on his mind is this this means nothing. I have seen Jesus already. And and here's the thing that makes it relevant to our lives today. Man, when you come into contact with God, you should not be so easily impressed by this world. 
And part of the problem why we are no longer impressed by God is because we are constantly being impressed by the world. Okay. Uh, uh, Lord, help me, please, right now, because I need you. God can no longer impress us because even the cross of Christ has become cliche to us. We've heard it so much. We have been around it so much that it means nothing. Somebody bringing up the cross of Christ, let somebody stand up here and sing about the blood, and we forget all that Christ has done for us in our lives. It no longer impresses us. It no longer takes our minds to another dimension. We are not drawn to tears anymore. Our hearts do not beat within us anymore because all of it has become cliche. Sister White even tells us that every single day, every day, Pastor Coxham, yes, every day, we ought to spend one thoughtful hour reading the life and times of Jesus Christ, especially the last scenes. Every day of our lives, we ought to reflect on the fact we would not be here unless Christ died on the cross to get us here. But nowadays, the cross has no value, really has no meaning. People just tattoo it on their arms and on their bodies. People just wear chains with the cross on it. The cross is spay printed everywhere, but it really does not mean anything. The cross is not a cute symbol, brothers and sisters. It's where Christ died for us. It's where his body was mangled and tortured and nailed to the cross so that you may have life. But God no longer impresses us. In fact, the majority of us are more impressed by celebrities than we are by God. (laughs) This week, Jay-Z and Solange had an altercation. Oh, you heard about it? (laughs) Yeah, they sure did. Point proven. (laughs) For those of you who don't know, Jay-Z and Beyonce are probably the most powerful couple in the world, as far as I can estimate, to be honest with you. They have tremendous influence. I think influence that Barack Obama and Michelle don't even have. Amen. They do. Yeah. Uh, Jay-Z is, you know, the king of all rappers, and Beyonce is the queen of R&B. Anyhow... The story goes that Jay-Z and Beyonce and uh, Beyonce's sister Solange, they get into an elevator. And, you know, the elevator cameras are on. And somebody in the security room was able to uh, uh, take a video of the footage. Inside that elevator, there's no sound, of course, but out of nowhere, I mean, Solange just goes buck wild. I don't know what happened. She went crazy. I don't know. She begins to kick Jay-Z and hit him. It's almost like she's trying to kill him for a moment. And I really got to affirm Jay-Z because he didn't hit her back. Amen. Praise God. He didn't hit her back. He just tried to stop her or what have you. But she just goes crazy. And, of course, nobody knows why she's doing that because there's no sound in the elevator. There's no sound from the video at all. But all throughout this week, I mean Twitter and Facebook, and all matter of social media. Everybody is going crazy. I think CNN may have supported, may have uh, reported it for a moment. I mean, everybody was trying to figure out what was going on. Now, your pastor may have got a a tad bit caught up in it, just a tad bit. Just curious, you know. And of course, I knew this was going to be a sermon illustration. That's why I went for it anyhow. Um, 
So this week, I, I was on Facebook and, you know, just scrolling through, checking daily, checking to see who, who liked my pictures and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> and, and I saw this one post where somebody had posted and it said, uh, the, the, the five unbelievable pictures from the Jay-Z and Solange um, event that you have to see. And of course, you know, for sermon purposes, of course, I clicked on it. Had to, you know, that's what I do. And, and when I clicked on it, the five pictures, none of them were about Jay-Z and Solange. In fact, the pictures showed hungry children in Africa. The pictures showed all of the terrorist attacks that are happening around the world. People who are in uh, abject poverty. People who are suffering around the world. And the text inside of that post basically said this. We are so caught up in celebrities that we have forgotten about what is really important. Now, it was almost as if God came from heaven, took out his hand and smacked me across my face. Immediately closed the computer and went into prayer and fasting in that moment. But it, it, it makes the point for us today that we are really no longer impressed by God. We are impressed by everything except God for the most part. We give our best for everything in the world but God for the most part. Celebrities impress us and what they do. We're all up in their lives. Scandal on ABC. Come on, ladies. Say amen. That impresses us. Soap operas impress us. The Game of Thrones impresses us. All of these TV shows that we are watching, social media impresses us. But by the time we've come to church, the pastor has to holler and scream and hoop and have the organ rearing up before anybody gets the Holy Ghost. And I probably said this before, but, but, but we should be so impressed by God, even if I didn't, didn't have clever anecdotes for you today, even if I was not eloquent enough for you today, even if I didn't make you jump and scream and I just went into the word and read the account of Paul and how he had faith in God, that ought to give you enough to praise the Lord. It ought to remind you of a time when you were in trouble and God brought you out. It ought to remind you of how good God is. People want preachers to preach them happy all day long because they're no longer impressed by the word of God. You will find people who are uncomfortable in the presence of God. They do not want to open the word for themselves for they think they will get nothing out of it. And we have so many people today who are praying, God, speak to me. God, give me a word. I need you to know what you want to do with me in my life. Tell me what you want me to do. And God simply outstretches his hand with the Bible in it and says, here is my word. If you would read my word, you would know what my will is for your life. If you would read my word, you would understand how much I love you and care for you. If you would read my word and spend time in my presence, you wouldn't be so upset at circumstances. You wouldn't get all out of sorts and you wouldn't be messed up throughout your life when you go through changes in this experience because you will be so close to me that I will walk with you and I'll remind you that my presence is with you. Paul, Paul, Paul is here. Just the wife says he is not impressed at all. All these high-ranking officials are there. 
Everybody is there. They're, they're, they're watching him. All eyes are on him. And at this moment, Paul is not thinking about himself at all. He is thinking about Jesus. And then the word of God says that when Festus gives him the opportunity to actually defend himself, Paul does not so much defend himself as he tells his story. Now, what I have found, especially amongst Adventists, can I go here for a moment, please? I'm just, I just, I really need to. Is that we are more inclined to defend our beliefs than tell our story. Now, what is more powerful? 28 sets of rules and doctrines or the story of what God has done for you. Paul does not seek necessarily to gain his freedom. Paul speaks about all that God has brought him from. He tells how he was a murderer of Christians and how God on the Damascus road blinded him. Jesus spoke to him and said, Paul, I want you to be a missionary on my behalf and tell people about Jesus. And Paul immediately goes into his story and says, King Agrippa, I could stand here and tell you that I've done nothing wrong. I could stand here and tell you that all these brothers are crazy and they just don't like me. But at the end of the day, what I want you to know is God has been good to me. And even though I'm in chains, I'll still praise his name. Now stop right there and think about that for a moment. Paul is in chains, but literally he is having an out-of-body experience. He is not thinking about the chains that he is in. His mind is in another dimension. Now, 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 I'm reading this book by Joyce Meyer called Battlefield of the Mind. Let me tell you something. I read a lot of books. I'm still reading a lot. That is one of the most powerful books I have ever read in my life. She talks about the power of your mind and the power of your thoughts. She talks about the power of perspective and how vitally important your mind is. Here's the truth of the matter, brothers and sisters. Your body can be conquered and the war not be over. But if the devil gets your mind, it's over. Once the devil has succeeded in convincing you that you are not going to make it, you are not going to get through, if the devil ever succeeds in getting you to forget about God, the battle is over. There's no more fighting to be done. She talks about the power of perspective. And as Paul is sitting there in chains, he's having an out-of-body experience. Even though his body is in chains, his mind is on the Lord. Now, here's the truth of the matter for you in your life right now. It would be much better for you when you are going through circumstances and the problems that you have in life, and all of us do. We all have storms. We all have issues. It would be much better for you to set your mind on things above and not earthly things. The more we dwell on the problem, we have a habit of blowing up the issue to its worst case scenario. And most of the time, the worst case scenario never happens. 
the devil always succeeds in winning over Christians because he gets power over their minds. That's why Marvin Sapp sings the song, praise will confuse the enemy. Because the truth of the matter is, if you can praise God while you are going through, you have already won. Your body can be in a hospital bed terminally ill, but the war is not over if your mind is still on Jesus. You can have all matter of problems going through a divorce, financial issues. At the end of the day, the devil has still not won until you yield your mind. The moment you stop praising God and the moment you stop having faith in him, that's when the devil wins. So I'd like to encourage you today. The more and more you have troubles in your life, you need to think more on Jesus and less on yourself. Paul just thought, God, I'm in trouble right now, but, you know, it's no big thing. I've been shipwrecked twice. I've been stoned already. I've been beaten five times, 40 lashes, save one every single time. People have cursed me out. People have tried to kill me, but you've saved me so many times. God, I'm not worried about it. I just want to know when you're going to do it. I'm thinking about you right now. And while I'm here, I'm not going to defend myself or try to work it out on my own. I'm going to tell other people about the goodness of your word. I'm going to let people know about the truth of your word and that your mercy endureth forever. If Christians really internalize this, we would have much better lives. Life today is simply this. 10% of what happens to you, 90% of how you react to it. Half of your problems become compounded because you dwell on them so much. And we are so negatively minded that we hardly ever give God glory in the midst of difficult circumstances. And you know what the word of God says? David says, I believe in Psalms 135, somewhere in there. The word says, praise waiteth for thee. In other words, there is a praise that is waiting to be given to God. Because he will work it out. David says, praise waiteth for thee. And you need to say that in whatever situation you are in in your life right now. God, praise is waiting for thee. I know you are going to bring me out. Victory is mine. This is not a prosperity message. This is the word of God. God says he will make us the head and not the tail. The word of God says we should not fear, for he is our strength and our light and our exceedingly great reward. The word of God tells us he is our refuge and our strength. Christians should not be afraid of anything. We are allowed to be disappointed. But we are never allowed to be discouraged. And although your body may be racked with pain, and you don't have a job, and you don't have the car that you want, and kids acting a fool, and marriage is on the rocks, if you would spend more time thinking positive thoughts, if you would spend more time reminding yourself of God's word and believing what he said... You would be able to accomplish what the word says, that we should rejoice always. That means in good and in bad. And you would not have to wait to see a sign from God to know that God is going to work it out. Okay, can I tell you this? 
I, I, this is one of my favorite pass, passages in the Bible it is John chapter 5, you know, of uh, the man who is an invalid who is sitting there on the pool by, by Bethesda on the porch there. And the word of God says he's been lame for 38 years. Jesus comes out of nowhere, almost really an insulting question, and says, do you want to get well? Well, of course, Jesus, I want to get well, but I don't have anybody to put me into the pool. Jesus' next response to him was, get up, take up your bed and walk. Now, the next verse says that he took up his bed and he began to walk. But then I read what Ellen White has to say. And in between verses 8 and 9 in John chapter 5, a cognitive dilemma is going on in his spirit during this time. It's a dilemma because he, 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 either he can, A, get up and risk embarrassing himself, or he can stay there and never get healed. Christ never gave him a sign. All he said was get up and walk. Now, in between those two verses, Sister White says this. She says that that brother who was lame for 38 years set his mind to latch on to the word of God. And that's how he was healed. God didn't do anything first. God didn't bring him up. God didn't mix up any elixir or potion. All God said to him was get up. She says that in his mind that day, he set his will to obey the word of God, and that's how he was healed. I wish God had some Christians who would set their minds to obey the will of God. I wish God had some people that even though they can't pay their bills, they still pay their tithe because the word of God says, prove me now herewith. Saith the Lord of hosts, if you will give unto me, I will open up the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. I know that my heavenly father wishes he had more people who actually believed his word. Truth is, before our body goes and before our spirit goes, our mind goes. We're already gone. We already lost the battle. The devil doesn't have to do anything else. But Paul, my brother, and this is it right here. Paul, my brother, is standing there in chains. And all he's thinking about is Jesus. Oh, how I long for a worship life like that. Oh, how I long to be able to praise God. When difficult stuff comes into my life, I want my first basic instinct to be praise and worship. Y'all not with me today. You don't even understand what I'm talking about. I want my first natural instinct that when somebody curses me out, y'all can't receive that. Hallelujah to the name of the Lord. That when I lose my job, God forbid, I'm not all out of sorts and I don't lose my mind, but I set my mind on Jesus because I know God will work it out. Now, there's times in my life, man, where I have seasons where I'm worshiping God. Now, there's two occasions where I'm really, really good for worship, and we all have highs and lows. Now, one of those times is when I'm in the shower. Y'all like, where in the world is he going with this? I don't know why. I don't know. But when I am in the shower, 
I am the most phenomenal praise team leader this world has ever seen. I seamlessly transition between songs. <laughs> I raise the key a dozen times. I know all the hymns and the notes and the riffs, and I sing every part of the choir, soprano, alto, tenor, bass, and baritone. I don't know really what it is, but when I am in the shower, God gets a real praise from me. And maybe it has something to do with the fact that when I wake up in the morning and I think about the fact that God's mercies are new every morning and his faithfulness does not fail. There's something about just being alive that endears my heart to God and I want to give him praise. I wish you could see me or hear me. No, see, hear me. As I'm praising God, it's a beautiful thing. The, the, the second occasion when I'm really good for worship is when I'm on an airplane. Stuff that I just noticed about myself in my life. I don't know. You don't, hope you don't mind me sharing. But most of you know I really don't like airplanes. It's not that I'm afraid. I've never cried on an airplane. It's just I trust God more on earth than I do in, on a plane. That's all that matters. Okay, all right. That's all it is. I've had more experience with him here on earth than I have on a plane. That's all it is. It's not that I'm a wimp. Or I'm, no, no, no. Yeah. Okay, all right. But when I am on a plane and somebody next to me, especially when I'm by a window seat, and they make sure I have to open up that window, I'm not going to lie. I hate looking down. And in those moments, I quote every single scripture that I know, backwards and forwards. And I don't know what it is, but my heart is closer to God than it ever is while I'm in church. And, and really, I think it has to do with the fact that when you are 30,000 feet in the air, above the clouds... There is something that reminds you that your life is not as significant as you thought it was. In fact, you are as insignificant as just about anything else at that moment. You need God every step of the way. You can't fly the plane for yourself. You don't know what's happening in the cockpit. You got to trust God for that moment. There's something about being high up in the air, seemingly closer to God, that gets my spirit right with him, that makes me want to worship him. And all I'm trying to say is, I don't want to just be able to praise God while I'm in the shower and while I'm in the airplane. I want to be able to praise God every moment of the day. I want God's words to be on my lips every single moment. I want to think positive thoughts. I want to take every thought and bring it captive to the obedience of Christ. I want people to see that I have been with Jesus that morning before I leave outside of my door. I want to be able to worship God in the most difficult of times. And that's why the word of God says that faith does not give us the victory. Faith is the victory. If you could change your thinking, you can change your life. But if you, you, if you can't change your thinking, you can't change your life. Okay, all right, all right. You, you, you say right now that you, you, you want to lose weight. Before your body receives that message, your mind has to receive that message. 
You can tell yourself, I want to stop drinking. I want to stop smoking. I want to stop looking at pornography. I want to get my life together. Before you can do any of that, your mind has to receive the message first. That's why Jesus tells us, be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. He does not say be transformed by the renewing of your soul. Does not say be transformed by the renewing of your habits. He does not say be transformed even by the renewing of your heart. God says if you want to change your life for the better, if you want to have victory over your problems, you got to change your mind first. And I pray in my life that I somehow have a relationship with God like Paul. That even though my body is in chains, my mind is free to worship. Last thing I'll tell you, I'm done. I'm done right here. This is it. I told you I'll be short today. Um, I, I was listening to, what is it, 103.3 this week. I think it's Moody Station. <laughs> and there was this lady who was giving a devotion. She was talking about thankfulness. Praising God for all that he has done. That even though God allows difficult stuff in our life and even though we go through hell and a half, God is still good. His mercy endureth forever. And his truth endureth to all generations. And then here's the kicker right here and I'm done. At the end, she was was speaking about thankfulness, thankfulness, appreciating God, grateful, grateful, grateful. And then she said, and I even want to thank God that I'm a quadriplegic. Now, that, that, that threw me for a loop. I'm listening to her, thinking she's just a normal person, you know, similar problems like I do, just giving thanks to God. Okay, I get that. But then she, when she said, I am a quadriplegic, and the way that she spoke about God, it is almost as if God has never allowed any wrong thing to happen in her life at all. And I felt so rebuked at that moment. Here I stand with all of my limbs, being able to move at my own request. (laughs) And this woman is praising God, and she is a quadriplegic. It makes you think to yourself that we don't give God enough praise. That we don't thank him nearly enough that we don't praise his name nearly enough and as I listened to her speak I said God forgive me for the complaining that I do day in and day out I should be dead I should not even be here But you have saw fit in your mercy, not only 2,000 years ago to die on the cross, but every day you're making more impressions on my life because your mercies are new every morning. So here it is, brothers and sisters. I told you I'm going to be short. I'm going to end it right here. This is what God told me to preach. (laughs) Mm. (sighs) Give me the words, God. If you are thankful for what God has done for you in your life and you are tired of complaining I want you to stand to your feet and and, and, and if you're really thankful 
I mean really, really grateful. I want you to make your way down here as a sign of solidarity to God. I am grateful for how you have saved my life. As we differ in faces, we differ in needs. I don't even know what half of y'all have been through. But if Paul could be grateful while in chains, um, surely you can find something to be thankful for. And it's been a, 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 a tremendous burden on my heart. I got a lot of decisions to make in the next couple of weeks, moving, transitioning out, there's a whole lot of life decisions I have to make. There's so much stuff I can complain about. My car, I mean, just money. It's, I mean, there's just so much stuff that the devil can find a stronghold in my life. But I'm glad God caught me early. And he said to me, I want you to give me praise anyhow. I want you to have an if-then faith. If not faith. Not an if-then faith. If then faith is conditional, that means if God does something, then I'll give him praise. No, even if he does not do it, he's still worthy of my praise. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. I want you to be grateful in this moment. You might not have done it all week. What strikes me as odd is that angels in heaven praise God 24-7 and they have never been through anything. Now surely you can praise him for your children and for your husband. You can praise him for your house that you could not pay for. You can praise him for your car that takes you from A to B. It may be a hoopty, but it works. You can praise God for a job and for money. You can praise God for family and friends that love you. You can praise him. You can praise him. I'm sure you can find something to praise him for. And if you can't find anything, just inhale and exhale. And that's praise enough. Father in heaven, in this moment, we're grateful. I've done what you told me to do. You told me to keep it simple this morning. To let your people know that they ought to be grateful for what you've done. And every last one of us here at the altar today, we're praising your name because of all that you have done. If we had 10,000 tongues, we could not praise you enough. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. 